Hey everyone, this is Ferris Musa with uh, Disrupt Equity and I'm here with Sam, kind of go through a little bit about asset management and kind of multifamily investing. If you want to learn about real estate investing, listen to my good friend Sam Newell's podcast, Recession Proof Real Estate Investing. Welcome to the Recession Proof Real Estate Investing Podcast. I'm Sam Newell, your host, and it is my goal to educate you on how to make profitable, low-risk real estate investments that will cash flow through any economy. I interview the top real estate investors and entrepreneurs in the country to find out what they have learned and implemented since the 2008 recession. With over 10 years in real estate investing, it has become my goal to help others invest for double-digit returns, but to also stay safe and not get caught in the next downturn. Tune in and become recession-proof. Appreciate you being on. I'm excited to talk to you and, and kind of listen about the deals, how you work with investors. But when are you coming down to Houston, more importantly? When am I coming to Houston? Yeah. Whenever we do a deal, man. You get your I, mean, I guess I probably won't come to Houston. I'll probably meet you wherever we're doing a deal, right? Oh, maybe, yeah. Let's When the happy to do that? Kind of depends. You know, before we really get started, Lyndon and I were just in San Francisco. So my business partner and I were in San Francisco, um, meeting with investors all over the place. So we've got money to raise. We have money we can put in deals. We've been very methodical very slow to partner with people and we like you and ben we like robert and rod um that's pretty much it well no we, we like glenn and and david we like marine miles um it's like those four groups are the people that we think are legit kind of doing mm -hmm. cool big stuff you know i've been burned i've been burned a couple of times bringing yeah. investors in with the wrong group it cost me a lot of money a lot of heartache and that's what I tell people, man, like people that raise money, I'm like, don't think about it as just raising money because, you know, you're going to get something. You're, you get one shot with these investors. And I'm like, don't put your investors in a deal that you don't believe in, right? Yeah. Like, uh, yeah, I mean, I've had to like grill people about that, you know, and um, yeah, and it's not, I don't care if you, you put them in someone else's deal or my deal, but it's just at least be a deal that you that, you know, you trust the operator because that operator, and this is what I, I stress this to Ben all the time, right? Mm-hmm about how operations are critical because not only is it me and Ben's reputation, it's our partner's reputation, right? Yeah. So trusting us with their reputation on the line, really. Right. And we need to make sure, you know, we protect that and value that, right. And keep it, you know, that's why like Ben and I double down and we just keep reinvesting back in operations, right. Where we can, right. like there's guys that are, you know, twice as big as us that don't have like half the back office we do. Right. Like, I'm just like, come on, like what really, you know what I mean? <laughs> so, that's kind of been our approach. It's just to really clamp down and make sure A, our deals make sense. B, you know, we work our ass off and make them perform, right? Yeah. So, because then, you know, that, that, that brings growth with it, right, over the long term. So, yeah, you reinvest in the company. It's funny you say that because the company that I'm complaining about, <laughs> we met one of their representatives at a finished unit with my client. She flew in from San Jose and he's wearing a swim trunks and brought nothing with him didn't write down anything. It was a final inspection for a new property. Didn't write down anything that needed to be fixed. There was a flooded unit. And I'm like, bro, like we've been over this. I need you to be professional. Like you don't work for me, but still I need you. I, it happened the last time someone flew in from San Francisco. The dude was wearing like t-shirt and shorts and one of the units was flooded. Like they can't get their quality control down. They can't represent me and my clients well. So my clients get pissed off. They feel like it's unprofessional. And ultimately, guess who that looks bad on? You know, that, that's me. Yeah, absolutely. I brought them the deal. Yeah, even yeah. like one thing, like I told Nancy on our team, right? 
she's kind of handling some of our operations and kind of paperwork. And I, and I tell her, I'm like, Hey, any investor that comes in, regardless of whose investor it is, we give them white glove treatment. Right. And you know, don't tell them just go do it on IMS. You go do it for them. Right. Like make it as easy as possible for all these people. Cause that shows an extra level of sophistication. So. Well, and, and you know, there's probably the most famous commercial broker in the Western U S his name's Brandon Fugel, and he said something that really hit me. He said, you know, even the people that don't have money, that it's a deal that I probably don't want, I'm going to treat them like they're multimillionaire clients because eventually they may be or they may pass yep. your information on, and, and so that's kind of what I've... Uh, I'll give you a real example. Like, we've had investors like to ask to put in, you know, 50000 instead of seventy five, and it's like, you know, they don't, they don't have a lot of money, right? And so that, you know, okay, great. We let them in, right? They invest that 50000 but like I've had a real cases where that person has 10 friends that he brings into the next deal. Like just, you know, he sees results and he tells his friends and they come in and now, you know, had I not been willing to, you know, I could have easily said, Oh, this guy is 50,000. It's not worth our time. Right. But like, I mean, that's not, that's really short sighted. Right. Cause you never know who else other people know. I mean, the value and you know, I mean, that person might grow too. So it's just uh yeah, because people literally will say that, like, oh, you know, only $50,000 investors. And I'm like, so what? I mean, you, I yeah. lose very little, and it's, you know, I do them a favor. They appreciate that and get them informed and deal. And you never know who their friends are. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I have a guy, and this is the worst example, best example of worst case scenario. I have a guy worth $300 million that I've kind of lost as an investor. He saw the product that I sold pre construction to him was being told it was high quality and it got built and it was anything but high quality. And he said, Sam, you know, what the hell did you sell me? And he won't talk to me now. He's worth $300 million. Well, guess who is his business partner is Steve Young, the retired NFL quarterback. And guess who his business partners are. So that was either a door opening or a door closing. Unfortunately, it was a door closing to me because, because of things I couldn't control. So you know, I was out in uh, San Francisco with with Robert Ritson Thaler and meeting with a couple of my partners and investors, potential investors. And our biggest thing was, you know, if we're going to raise money with you, either A, we're going to have control. That's not the case with an experienced syndicator, though. So if we're not going to have control and we're raising money with you, we've got to be able to trust you big time. And there's got to be some stoppages, you know, some some type of scenarios where we were able to help make the decisions. And, and anyways... So that's kind of my, my client's biggest concern. My clients that have a lot of money, that's their biggest concern is if I bring a half a million, a million dollars to this deal, what kind of control do I have if, if something starts going south? Mm -hmm. So um, anyways, it, it's, it's hard because that's what syndication is. You're giving up control and maybe there's not a great answer for that. I don't know. Yeah, you know, there's, I mean, everything is negotiable, right? To a degree, right? So if there's an investor that's bringing in, you know, let's say they're bringing in hundred percent of the capital stack. Well, that investor has a little bit more leverage over any syndicator, whether it's us or someone else around, you know, what's in the company agreement, right? So yeah. don't forget that, right? I mean, so there's, yeah. I mean, there's, and I tell that to people, I mean, obviously that works against me, right? But I tell them, I'm like, hey, you have control in that model. There's ways to do things to where everyone you know, is happy. And so, you know, like Ben and I aren't greedy guys. That's never been our MO, right? You know, we have our process, our system. And, you know, and we like to be fair and reward people, right? Like if someone, if an investor is, so I look at it from their side. If an investment investor is 100% of my, my capital stack, right? Mm -hmm. Not fair to them that I'm not giving them some sort of management control or, you know, it's like day-to-day -day we're involved. But if we bomb it and here's like, you know, let's just define it. Occupancy drops below 75%. That investor is able to come in and take over. Or really, I mean, you know, he can vote us out any time of the day, right? There's a lot of 
you know, it's, it's, it makes sense. It's fair, right? It's yeah. not about, you know, just me being in control because that investor arguably unlocks other opportunities for me, right? So yeah, there's, and, and I think thought. there's like, I don't need the investor. I can raise my money, you know, the normal way. Or there's, okay, let's find a way to compromise and work together. And, you know, we all grow continuously. So No, I think that's, I, I like those two points you made. You know, uh, if it drops below a certain point, you know, so there's, yeah, there's, there's things in place that assure this investor that if he needs to, he can, he can come in and clean house. And, you know, if you and Ben die on an airplane <laughs> crash or something or something crazy, that can happen. So mm-hmm. yeah, we'll, we'll have to talk more about that. I'd love to get you on a call with um, Michael Young. Um, I think you met him at the mastermind group. He's, he's interested in learning more and a couple of my other investors as well. But you know, it's funny, something happened yesterday. I got a check for 20 grand and it's my grandma sold a condo. She's giving it to my mom. I, I'm going to, since my mom's on, on government housing, she couldn't accept it. So it's in my name and I'm going to invest it for her. So I was thinking like a really good topic for, you know, my podcast going forward is, or a, one really good question I can ask is, hey, Ferris, I have 20 grand or, you know, I'm going to be getting more from my grandma for my mom. It's not my money. It's, it's my mom's, but I've got my mom's she's up against a wall. She, she's sick and she's on government assistance. I've got her last hundred thousand dollars or no 20,000 of her last hundred thousand. Let's say that your minimum investment is 20,000. Where would you put it? Which deal would you put it in? And ultimately, you know, um, I know you're only taking sophisticated investors, so let's ignore that. You know, would you feel comfortable taking that money and would you feel confident enough in your own business plan and business model to say, Hey Sam, you know, um, we can invest her money and get XYZ return and we have a track record. It's an interesting question. I mean, you're asking me to answer that right now. If you want to. I can answer right now. So, okay. <laughs> so I, I have investors that come to me, they're like, hey, I have a million dollars I want to put into a deal. And yeah. I tell them, let's not do that. Yeah. <laughs> let's break it out because that's risky, right? Yeah. You know, sure, you could ride, the, you know, get the unicorn and it home runs. But, you know, really the right way to do it is you spread your wealth across more deals. Because I have this problem with friends actually from Microsoft, right? Where, you know, like they have to kind of bet on one deal and that's the problem, right? So the way, you know, these deals works is that you have several deals that work. One deal will kind of just do okay. Then you have a unicorn. And the problem is you need to spread your wealth to be able to hit that unicorn, right? Like we had a yeah. deal that sold 365% return. That's a Whoa. unicorn. This deal that I told you in Atlanta, you know, 365% was two and a half years. This deal in Atlanta, 130 in 15, 16 months, that's a unicorn, right? Needing to be spread is hedging your wealth, right? Or hedging your bets. And so I tell investors, let's put, Instead of putting a hundred a million in one deal, let's do, let's go do, you know, like 200,000 in five deals, right? Let's go yeah. do that. And so, um, you know, that's what I tell people that now, you know, if we're talking about like a $25,000 investment, it's a person's last money, you know, to be honest, if that's really all their money, there's, there's not enough cash flow to really do anything for them in the real estate side, right? That's the problem. Sure. So, you know, they have to go park this money for a year but they're going to get, let's say they get 10%. That's two and a half thousand. That's not that much money. Right. Is that really the right use of it? Because really, you know, if the person, you know, it's their last of their money, there's probably better uses of that money for them to begin with, right? Even just because even if they burn down that money over 10 years, right? If a person, let's say it's an elderly person, you know, they, they don't expect to be around for 10 years. Well, yeah. the money's probably better not parked away in real estate. I'll be honest with you, right? It's probably better you know, they burn it down. They use three grand a year for three years instead of, you know, two and a half, right? You know, that's a kind of a weird case, right? Now, if it's, you know, if it's people that are looking for the long term, right? And I tell people real estate is not a get rich quick. Yeah, we had some home runs, but that's not at all the plan. Don't assume that I tell them, 
Here's right. what we've done, but I don't want you to buy for this reason at all. Here's what these deals that I tell you and buy for these, these numbers is what you're, are you okay with, with these numbers, right? The double your money, six years, whatever we're presenting, right? Now, if you're comfortable parking your money that long, you don't need the money. You're not, you know, you're looking for the cash flow, right? To your point, it's really, is that person looking for cash flow? And if so, there's certain deals that work, certain deals that don't work. This Atlanta deal was awesome because it's a doubling money in 16 years, but it wasn't a cash flow deal. We paid zero percent, zero distributions. And that's what we said from the beginning. Like that was the plan. Right. There's no distributions, but you're going to, you know, the, after the refi would start in really big distributions. Right. But now right. we're selling it, but you know, that deal doesn't work for certain people. Right. Similarly, I have my, you know, Microsoft friends who, you know, I'm slowly getting them pulled into this, right. The tech people don't, you know, they're a little more reserved, right. Cause it's all, mm -hmm. you know, it's not stock market. Right. And so, there are certain deals that work for them, certain deals that don't, right? Some people that are really, that think it's snake oil, right? You want to get them in a deal that pays distributions really quickly, right? They can see like, look, there really is money coming in. You don't want to get them in a deal that's a, a full-blown, hardcore reposition, no money for a year and a half kind of deal, right? So yeah. depends. you have to really, and I tell that even to investors, right? I'm like, hey, Sam, if you have an investor that's kind of on the fence about this to begin with, they're willing to go out on the limb for you, get them in the right deal. You need to really understand who your investor is and what deal makes sense for them. Cause not all, not all deals are created equal. Right. Yeah. No, I, you had a couple of good points there. Um, you know, and maybe that question wasn't the best because ultimately I don't want to take people's last 20 grand and I don't think you do. Yeah. Either. That's a weird one. I think maybe more the question I was asking is let's say my mom or a family member saved up 20, 50 grand, a hundred grand. Um, the realization I had was Holy crap how confident am I in this model? Mm -hmm. You know, um, cause it, I, I think it gets a little bit more real for me when it's someone really close to me. Oh, absolutely. Uh, not that I don't care about my clients and investors, but it's much more real all of a sudden. Yeah. I mean, it's my parents are invested in this stuff. Ben's parents made a lot of money on that. You know, that's Ben's parents. Like that's, that's kind of their retirement that they, they have. Kind yeah. of I mean, it's like we had a lady on this deal in Atlanta. She, I didn't realize she was the biggest investor, but she was, and she had pretty much, pretty much her entire IRA on the deal. Oh, wow. um, and you know, she called once she kind of saw that we're selling it and she was just so thankful because it's life changing, right? Like it really is. Yeah. Right? So, you know, there's the flip side of that. Well, if this didn't pan out and it totally didn't work out, yeah, she could have took up a big risk. And so it's right. rewarding as a syndicator to see kind of the impacts you do have. Right where, you know, you just made people fifty, a hundred thousand dollars. That's a lot of, that's life changing for most people. It really is. Right. Yeah. So, um, no, that's know, really cool. I, I love that. And as a realtor, you know, I'm a commercial broker, residential broker. And, and, you know, my favorite example is my good friend, the seminary teacher, you know, he doesn't make a ton of money. Yeah. He adds a ton of value to people's lives and he teaches, you know, seminary and church classes, but, um, financially it's not uh, overly rewarding for him. He saved his money though, and we we've doubled his money in the last three years. Well, it's the kind of thing, right? People will spend fifteen years saving fifty thousand dollars, and yeah. if you double it for them in four years, how much further are they in life? Yeah, right? yeah, that's really exciting for me, and I love that you said that because it is. It's hugely rewarding when you help people, and I also like what you said. You know, spread that money out over a few deals, because I've looked at track records from a few syndicators, and no one that I would ever do business with has lost money, but they've had the unicorns. They've had returns that are just absolutely ridiculous. And they've had investors, they even told me they've had investors pretty pissed off 
why didn't you put me in that deal? Well, I, I didn't know it was a unicorn when yeah, I bought it. You don't it. know the unicorn until later, right? And it's, I mean, even this Atlanta deal, I'm not going to lie with you, a lot of you. I mean, this deal, six months into it, man, Ben and I were like ripping our eyeballs out of it. It was all pain across the board. We were like, oh, man, like, what do we get ourselves into, right? Like, but, you know, the numbers don't lie. But it's like, I mean, it, you grind it out, especially like a lender that won't fund you and you're battling with them and you're battling with tenants and you're battling with crime and occupancy is 40%. It's, you know, it's not roses, right? I mean, you just have to oh, yeah. grind it. That's where a lot of people falter, right? People do one, two deals and they don't have the systems. They don't have the operations. They, they can't even sustain more deals, right? Let alone getting to a deal that's like a big turnaround. It's, I mean, there's, it's bad. Like, you don't know it's a unicorn till later. Once you kind of get back on the other side, you can kind of breathe a little bit and, you know, you have to like, that's why we put up 300,000 of our own money. I was never going to go to investors on that deal. That deal, we knew it performed. It would make the money. It's purely the stupid lender that's holding on to all of our rehab money. Yeah. <laughs> Little, I'll give a real example. I, I, you know, we haven't gotten a payment from the lender for like eight months, dude. It really has been that, maybe even more than that, 10 months actually. And finally, we're so, pay, you know, we're 95% occupied, all that. Yeah. And I finally submitted, you know, a draw. And I'm like, here's a draw. Everything's already said and done. You just need to just give me the money now. Yeah. And the guy, this is what really pissed me off. He, he came back and says, you guys aren't able to service your note, right? We need to hold on to the money. And then I was so, I true, I basically replied back. I'm like, Hey, our NOI is this much. Our note is this much. And with escrow and everything, we're still paying it. So where do you say we can't service the note? I'm yeah. like, e, we're, we pay interest on the money that you're holding in reserve. What, where does it say in the, the, the loan agreement that you can hold on to money for servicing a note and see, I mean, like your point, it was just like so stupid. I saw that and I forwarded the bet. I'm like, I can't wait to sell this deal. But then yeah. they finally, out of the blue, like they didn't respond. Then are you paying them? He's like, you guys will get the money on Friday. Okay. So you guys are just like liars, man. It's just, oh, my oh God. these guys piss me off so much. Well, other but, than crappy bridge lender that you'll probably never use again, I, I'm, I, I, you're only experienced. You're not experienced until you're experienced. So we're going to go through our first one here in the next little bit. And I'm just kind of curious, what was your hardest part of you and Ben managing this heavy, heavy lift. Just dealing with GCs and the rehab. I mean, that's really what it is, right? I mean, you know, that's just, that's always a pain. And yeah, you know, I mean, it's just dealing with the cash flow. Cash is king in this business, right? At least with these rehabs, you know, these properties eat money during rehabs, right? Yeah. Because you take an occupancy dip, so you don't produce money. You're yeah. doing all this rehab. I mean, it's being, you know, just managing the cash position in general, right? So, um, so did you raise money to pay the mortgage, pay the note, basically, assuming that you had a pretty massive uh, vacancy dip? Um, yeah, like we knew we'd have a vacancy dip. So that was the, that was the intention, right? So, Got it. Got it. Well, hey, um, usually at the start of the podcast, I say, hey, you know, Ferris, where were you in high school, college? Obviously, I know you have a tech background, but were you dreaming of someday helping people achieve massive success in real estate investing and being a syndicator were you focused on tech were you like me and like not even close to either of those i was actually wanting to be an air force fighter pilot um so i didn't think about real estate in the slightest but where were you in high school and, and what were you thinking about what were your hopes and dreams <laughs> high school i had my own little mini software company i made a good amount of money for a high schooler and always right. planned to probably continue doing that so definitely did not you know realize much about real estate, if anything. So when did you get interested in real estate? Um, I guess so. I mean, after college, I worked at Microsoft and then I left Microsoft, started a software company. And 
as part of that, I mean, I just had extra money I was looking to invest in. You know, I'd obviously done the stock market, done all these other things, and I'm the kind of person that I'll just go read and learn a lot and then hop in and figure it out. And a lot of fourplex, that's what they say, you know, on all the podcasts. And there's very few fourplexes in Houston that make sense. And I bought it while I was still in Seattle. Like I literally, oh, wow. you know, before I even moved back to Seattle, I had it under, or back to Houston, I had it under contract. Where, you know, I had to run all the numbers and I called a random agent. And I'm like, hey, I just need someone to buy this, transact this for me. So I kind of tossed that agent a bone. And he did bring me a deal like six months later. Oh, nice. But I bought a fourplex. It's like one of the only two areas of Houston that makes sense to do a fourplex where it's where not a... That in? I know Houston fairly well. Westheimer and Derry Ashford. I still own it till this day and it's literally on the market as we speak. So it'll be sold probably here soon. Oh, cool. Um, but I mean, that thing's been a cash cow, right? So although the potential... Houston doesn't have a lot of fourplexes in general. So, you know, ended up buying a bunch of houses and then kind of from there got into multifamily. Got it. And, and that was after you'd been in the tech industry how long? Man, depends. Do you count high school or not? I mean, I've always been in the tech industry. Yeah, man. You can count high school. It's 15 years. Okay. So 15 and, years. I mean, I'm still a techie at heart. I totally. Oh, know, I can tell. Off. Yeah. I love your systems. And actually, I wanted to ask you about that. I mean, you're so much better at systems, I can tell, than me. It's not even funny. Like, obviously, you have a tech background. But tell me a little bit about the two systems. You're using Asana and what else were you using? That talks to each other. We use Asana, Slack, Podio. Slack. We've yeah, used yeah. Um, Trillo in the past. I mean, I'm looking at tying in even more things, right? So, I mean, for us, we use Asana as our task management. Asana got its roots really kind of for the tech world. So, mm-hmm. the, one of the co-founders of Facebook left and started Asana. Oh, okay. And so, it's really task management on steroids. And, you know, what, what I like about Asana is it can be as flexible as you want it to be. So, you kind of make it what you want. Uh-huh but it's got integrations just like Slack, right? So Slack can be pretty flexible and you can integrate a lot of different things. And so, you know, we kind of have our processes and our systems and it's a good way to kind of not forget things and have deadlines and track things and our people getting things done, right? And so, I mean, you know, we have a team behind us as well. And so how do you help keep it? Our, our team is all remote. Yeah. Right? I mean, yeah, you know, most of how our many team, do you have on your team? Five people. Five people. Got yeah. it. So you're, so they're all remote and you're helping them stay on task using Asana. Yeah. And Slack. And so, I mean, you know, we have our zoom calls, we have kind of obviously our processes, but you know, it's how do you, cause I, I believe in people are most productive. If you let them kind of work the way they want to work, right. Uh-huh. The right people, you still have to put rails in place. Yeah. Cause you know, I mean, some people just don't know how to work remote. I mean, it's, 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 it's a little bit of a skill set, Right. And so if you can kind of put enough rails and systems in place, right. But give people the benefits of, being able to work where they want so you know because i don't care if you're in hawaii or if you're in new paris or if you're in you know london right i mean you know if yeah. you're out your output is your output regardless of where you are right so, you know, if you if you want to work nights and go party all day i don't care right i mean it's you know are you getting things done are you accomplishing things are you are you working on things that we discuss and you know working towards the same bigger goal oh that's great and and so I, that's something I think maybe offline you and I'll talk a little bit about, but I really like that you're so organized. You're so task oriented because there's so many people that struggle with that, including me mm-hmm. getting much better at it. Thanks to just learning, just, just getting better at task organization. Um, definitely not a strong point though, but let's start, let's go back to the conversation of you getting in real estate. What year did you buy your first unit? 2013. Okay. So you got in after the downturn. I'm curious though, 
did your industry, you had a software company, did that really get hit hard during 2000, 2008? No, like, so I, I already had, a, so I interned at Microsoft and Microsoft gave me a full-time offer before my last year of college. And then, you know, 2008 happened, right? Yeah. So that, you know, that crash happened and they still held the offer. They still, you know, I remember them sending out an email to all the people that had gotten offers as interns saying, don't worry. Yeah. You know, Microsoft announced they're not going to hire new people, but you guys are still getting your position. So oh, I mean, cool. did not get impacted really. Right. Interesting. So I really like to hear that crash more than anything else. So what was that? I said it was a big real estate crash more than anything else. Right. Oh, sure. I'm sure. The stock market took a dip, but I mean, it's not like tech companies shut their doors, you know, right after. Yeah, there's a lot of people losing jobs, but um, probably in the financial sector, real estate sector more than anything. And I really like that you have that tech background because in Utah, we have the Silicon Slopes, huge amount of tech jobs, Adobe, Amazon, eBay, Oracle, Workfront, um, I don't know, they're Intrata, a lot of it's tech-based, most of it's tech-based. And um, a lot of my investors have asked, you know, what is the next? next downturn look like? Are all these jobs going to disappear? And my answer is, you know, well, Oracle was around before the last crash. Um, Facebook, Adobe's been around a long time. So I don't, I don't think, but I also don't have the experience really to know how heavy the tech tech industry was really hit. So do you have any more insight on that? Like how diverse? I mean, or, companies, or, you know, did hiring freezes, like Microsoft did their first time of layoffs, but most of these big companies, it's not that they're they're doing layoffs because they have to. It's that really because the market took a dip, it gives them cover to say they're going to, you know, to be able to, to do a layoff and essentially get rid of, not that they're closing divisions, but get rid of unneeded employees, right? Mm -hmm. Over time, these companies end up hiring more people than they usually they need, right? And so it's about getting more efficient and, you know, the fact that the market has crashed gives them cover of saying, hey, we're going to also join the party and, you know, get rid of the, the employees that we don't want to retain, right? Got it. Whether it's performance or just, you know, not the right fit or whatever it is, right? But it wasn't like these tech companies were at risk of closing their shop, you know, closing no, doors. I can't think of a single one. I mean, you know, obviously the big companies are pretty resilient, right? I and mean, they're all sitting on so much cash. I mean, that's the other thing, right? Yeah. Like, you know, Microsoft, Apple, all these are sitting on $100 billion of cash. You know, I mean, well, what about the startups, though? What about, you know, the guys, the, for instance, Snapchat, I don't know that they're even profitable. Maybe they are now. I, I don't follow that. But there's a, it seems like there's a lot of SaaS companies mm -hmm. that are startups. They have huge Yeah, but, uh, but think about it this way. The, the lot of, there, there's a lot of SaaS companies. They're B2C, right? They're, they're start B2B. And, you know, those businesses that, that are their customers are still around too, right? So, yeah. you know, like, yeah, do companies try to make budget cuts and cut back on expenses? <clears throat> yes, right? But it's not drastic to where companies are having to fully shut down, right? Like, yeah, maybe they're making a little bit less, you know, maybe they, they don't hire new people, right? That's the big, in tech, it's really, there's more hiring freezes than there are layoffs, right? In recessions. Yeah. Got it. Right. So. No, I like that. Well, so tell me this, you, you're heavy into real estate. You're a syndicator doing huge things. You're competing for deals, I'm sure. And I know you're losing deals to other people probably because you're conservative, which I like, but what mistakes are you seeing people make that probably is going to catch up to them if there is another recession. Man, it's looking at what people are doing on the reversion caps. I mean, to me, it's really people don't do a good job of pausing and saying, Hey, this property I'm planning to buy, what, what if I, I'm modeling it out to sell right in six years, what yeah. price point am I selling it at? And like, does that even make sense? 
Mm -hmm. Right. So, you know, I don't want to mention any names. I'm sure I gotta be careful, but it's like, you know, cases like where if I'm modeling a deal that I'm buying, let's say I'm buying a deal at 80 a door and I'm putting 20 a door into it. So now my cost base is a hundred. Right. And now this is, let's say it's a 70 year old, yeah, built in the 70s. So it's about a 50 year old deal. Right. Yeah. So my cost base is a hundred and I'm planning to sell it at 110 a door. Does that make sense? Right. Yeah. But that's kind of above replacement costs. Is anyone going to actually pay that? You know what I mean? Yeah. Even if the NOI supports it, like really, you know what I mean? What's, does that feel right? So there's a lot of times that like we underwrite a deal and you know, maybe it can handle a bigger, like a higher price point but we have to back off because I'm just like, man, this doesn't pass like just the sniff test. Yeah. People are so fixated on just, you know, to me numbers don't lie. And I'm the first person to say that, but the numbers also don't lie whenever you're talking about replacement costs versus, you know, so there's kind of two schools of two conflicting sets of numbers is the problem. And so to me, you know, I don't care for the deals that are, you know, hundred a door and putting 20 into it. And then, you know, maybe I make it, I mean, those are, those are crazy, right. To me. And so, I mean, you know, yeah, yeah that's my problem is those, those kind of deals. Right. And that's why we don't own anything in Houston or Dallas. I mean, we struggle to get a deal that Just works because you Houston can't get price it for a, a low enough price. I mean, you would own in Houston or Dallas, but the market's too hot there. It sounds like, yeah, like I love the markets, right? The markets are nice, but the price yeah. points are not attractive well, enough. And that's why you're looking at building just like me. It's like, well, wait a second. If I'm going to pay $100 a door, 100000 a door or whatever it is. I literally got a proposal today from this friend. Yesterday, I went and looked at some some lands and got the, the price points and everything so we could build, you know, 75 a door. Dude, that's awesome. I, we need to talk more about that. And, and and we have the same thought process. I'm building in Utah and Boise, writing offers on, on uh, 15-acre parcels, 5-acre parcels, where if there's going to be rent appreciation. It's going to be great in a non-luxury A class. You know, that's, that's pretty recession proof. I'm not going to build luxury and I don't think you are either, but maybe spend a tiny bit more and maybe have a little bit lower return at the beginning. But eventually, I mean, I think it's, that's one of the best buys you can do in this market is new construction at a lower price and not paying a premium for a C class 50 year old building. Yeah, no, I call it, how do you build the A minus minus product and solve the affordable housing? It's funny, yesterday, as part of looking at the land, we were in a pocket of Houston that is more lower income. And so we're kind of going through that whole area. Um, yeah, because there's some people that we know that have land in different areas and we're just driving through all the land. But the guy took me to this one neighborhood where it's essentially their houses that are for rent. So, Matt, you know, one guy built the whole neighborhood, he just rents them out. And, you know, I think it would almost like a unique multifamily, right? Wow. But it's really, you know, he's building them at, you know, 55, 60, $65 a square foot built. Jeez. <laughs> Are they like cement floors and like... They look decent. No, they're, I mean, they, they look good. The pro, they don't look bad. I mean, I should have taken pictures, but yeah, I mean, it's just an interesting business model. But again, he's solving that affordable housing problem, right? And making good money for it, right? So... Interesting. Yeah, and, and affordable housing yeah, is a real thing. Need, I mean, in Houston, you know, Houses are big, right? People don't need big houses in general, right? Especially if you're solving the affordable house. So then the problem that what was scared me about that was like, man, people could pay this kind of rent and get this whole house. <laughs> like yeah. you know, there's apartments that are not nowhere near as nice that our people are expecting to pay more, right? So yeah, this is weird. <laughs> land is so cheap. Right. Yeah. That, that is crazy. Well, I, I still think it's smart though. You know, why, again, why put your investor's money into a 50, 60 year old building that needs rehab 
that may not sell for 110 a door in five or six years, you know, but Hey, a class, non-luxury a class, I think is the answer. I think you're on to something there. So we'll have to talk more, but we'll definitely see. So tell me about your, you've got some really cool deals going on. You've got some, you've purchased some really cool deals. As far as a syndicator goes, you know, what is a target return for your investors? You're not going to do 130% on each deal. So what are you targeting? What are you trying to do? Our deals that we're modeling today are typically doubling people's money in five or six years, right? It just depends on the deal, you know, how much value add, what's the risk, right? For doing, if it's a more risky deal in the sense of there's down units, like we as sponsors are having to do a lot more work. I expect that deal to be, you know, more of a five-year play, right? For having to, if that deal only works at a six-year play at the price point, well, I mean, I'd rather go buy a deal where we don't have to do all this extra heavy lift. Yeah, well, that makes sense. So you're you typically looking at 8 to 12% cash on cash is what we're kind of trying to average. And um, yeah, I mean, you know, we're looking at, you know, on a reversion cap, we're looking to be kind of three quarters to a point higher than kind of what the, the market is. And that's the important thing is what the market is. People really fixate on, you know, oh, I bought it. If I overpay for a deal at five cap and then I underwrite it on the exit at a six cap, does that make sense? Well, no, not if the market was already a six and I'm a, I just yeah. chose to overpay. And so it's really, what is the market cap that you're looking at? Well, explain reversion cap because most people don't know what that is. So you yeah, buy so something, market average, let's say the market average is a 6% cap rate. So the first question is, what is a cap rate, right? So yeah. I tell people cap rate is simple. It's if you bought a property all cash and you did nothing extra to it and you operated the exact same way as the previous owner, right? How much, what would you expect to get in a year? Right. That's all a cap rate is. Now, reversion cap rate, so cap rates are valuable wise. So today with a house, right, if you're selling your house in the neighborhood, you pull comps and you see what are the other houses in the market selling for. Mm-hmm. Well, with commercial real estate, it's not that easy. There's not as many. It's not, it's not, uh, it's, it's income the based, right uh, next to you. It's more about, yeah, like what is, how much are they, how much income are they producing? So the way you yeah. compare different assets is you look at cap rates. And so a market might be a six cap. Austin's more of a five and a four and a half cap, right? Different markets have different caps and that's really all the properties in that market or that submarket are going for that cap rate. Now, whenever we talk about the cap rate, the cap rate, the equation for the cap rate is, is that, you know, the cap rate is equal to the NOI over the value, right? So there's a relationship between the NOI and the value and the cap rate. Yep. And so now whenever we're talking about reversion cap rate, we're saying, okay, in five years or six years, whenever we sell this deal, right? If the market, you know, we assume the market's going to get worse. Maybe right. it'll stay the same and that's fine. That's gravy. But don't count on we assume it. cap rates are going to go up. Exactly. We don't assume there's going to be more cap rate compression. Yeah. We assume that today when I buy at a seven cap, I might have to sell at an eight cap in a year. And so reversion cap is just how I calculating my value based on what I think the cap rates will be in five years. And, and so I think what you said earlier is, and, and I think it's across the board, people are expecting to either sell at the same cap rate they bought or a a lower cap rate, which is a terrible yeah, mistake. Deals where they assume it's going to get better. And I'm but like, but the, right. the same estimation that they're using for that, it goes into their rent bumps. They're probably estimating bigger rent yeah. bumps than they can actually get or estimating lower expenses than they'll actually have or lower um, capital expenditures than they'll actually have. And so I think you have bu- people buying deals with completely wrong estimations of yeah. What well, they can sell it for, what they can rent it for, and how much money they actually need to put into it. Yeah, like there's simple things that will really impact a deal, right? Like if all you do is, I can take like the worst deal I underwrite and make it look good if all you do is do a slightly better reversion cap, right? These are subtle things, right? Yeah. Instead of doing, you know, a point, maybe I do half a point. 
And then instead of doing two, two and a half percent rent multipliers, I do three and a half percent. And instead of doing two and a half percent expense multipliers, I do 2%. So now all that alone will take a deal that might underwrite at 20% mm -hmm. over five years and make it look like a hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. So. And it's funny that you mentioned that. So that's one thing that maybe our listeners can look out for is if you're looking into syndicators, I mean, syndicators are a dime a dozen right now. Good syndicators, there's a difference. And, and that's what Ferris, you just mentioned is, you know, a syndicator right now can find a deal and make it look pretty sexy, you know, put lipstick on a pig on a pro forma and get people's money by the deal. And guess what? He's going to get a big acquisition fee and good for him. But the problem is, is the exit, you know, and the actual returns to that investor, especially if the market changes. So talk to me about the market changing. What do you, what do you guys put into place? I know you have, you know, capital reserves. I know you have um, different things in place, but let's say the market does go down and we've got five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10% vacancy in units. Um, what, what have you guys done to ensure that you're going to be not as I mean, at risk as others? You got to stress test the deals. I mean, that's really what it boils down to, right? Again, numbers don't lie. So if Oxford takes a dip and we can't get rent escalators, where is the deal? Are we, the most important thing is there's return on your money and there's return of your money. So you syndicate, you want to make sure you always can return their money, right? Yeah. First and foremost, can we service the note? There are our bases covered. Then you're looking at, okay, the upside. And so, I mean, you know, we just, Luckily, most of our dealers are value add. And so we're not just betting on hypothetical market increasing, right? Like we, we are doing things fundamentally to change the dynamic of the deal to where we are at a higher level. And so we underwrite that and, you know, with our rehab budget, et cetera. So that makes it a little bit easier in our, my world, at least for the kind of deals that we do versus mm -hmm. if I bought a class A stabilized, like I'm 100% susceptible to the market, right? Yeah. I can't go make a deal really much nicer, right? I mean, you know, or most people that are buying those aren't kind of necessarily planning that. And so that's that. I mean, then you kind of, you know, you got to play with the, what's your occupancy at, what's your rents at. If the market kind of flattens for a year or two, what does that look like? Right. And it's just making sure that you're, you're protected. And then even, you know, debt go into the deal differently. Like we had a deal in Atlanta that we ended up doing at a lower leverage point just because we could yeah. support it. And I'm like, well, it's less risk. And it was yeah. interesting because you have different investors that'll come out of the woodworks for that kind of deal. Right, people that might put a hundred thousand in every deal, like the same people were coming out and they're putting two, three hundred thousand in that deal, because again, that deal is so much more safer than another deal. Right, our leverage yeah. point is so much lower, and so what's in there, and then it's interesting because as a sponsor, it's almost like I can, you know, I can talk, I, you know, on that deal, like it's, I mean, I will always be able to pay something now, right? Yeah, you know what I mean? Like maybe you be okay. Maybe the market takes a dip, we don't hit our number, but there's, you know, your debt service is so low that you still have so much more, you know, meat left for you to pay something. So it's interesting. And, and so do you find it a lot easier to raise money on deals that you're putting more deposit, you know, more down payment down? So we've only had, I mean, the, that one is the extreme example where we were lower. It's different, right? I mean, there's always the fear of, okay, I have to raise more money, but then it's like, becomes a selling point that we are lower leverage, right? We're right. not the deal. Our deals have never, unfortunately, or unfortunately, I guess, depending how I look at it, we've never been able to do the 80 years, I 80% uh, IO, five years, sorry, 80% leverage, five years IO, you know, the, those deals, like there's deals that in Dallas only work because of that. And that's fine. I mean, that's, right. that's a tool, right? Being able to get the right kind of loan. But unfortunately, we, we haven't been able to do that. But 
The flip side is being at the lower leverage point and being able to get five years old because we're lower leverage. That's, that's, that's attractive. I mean, even me as an investor, I'd invest in that deal just because, yeah. you know, I mean, it's just a lower risk deal, right? Absolutely. Is it a good sponsor? Is the value add there? Okay. And then, you know, worst case, if you know, a sponsor doesn't do their part, well, I mean, we're still at such a low leverage, right? So. Yeah, that's huge. That's huge. What else? I mean, what else are you guys doing or what advice? Maybe this is a good, better question. What advice would you have to investors looking to invest? Say it's my mom, say it's me who I've invested in lots of deals, whoever it is, there's a million syndicators out there. I feel like they're the new, new wholesalers. <laughs> they're all <laughs> over the place. What advice would you have as far as what to look for in a deal? What as maybe paperwork, maybe what, how the offering memorandum or the subscription mm-hmm. paperwork goes? Yeah, I would say read the, the operating agreement. There are subtleties in there that can be changed that people will easily overlook that, you know, I mean, different sponsors operate different ways, right? Like so far, and I think, I mean, we, we, we I think we will always be this way. You know, I don't want to make any promises, but, you know, we, we let our investors get the upside in our deals, right? If we have that unicorn, our investors ride that train with us, right? Whereas, you know, like our structure is very simple, right? We don't do hurdles. We keep it pretty simple because you know, our goal is to responsibly grow a bigger company, right? How do we get to a hundred deals, you know, as a company? And so you don't do that by milking any one deal, right? You build, you know, you build a track record, you build a a reputation and a following. And so, you know, to me, it's read the company agreement, understand, is there a, is there a cash out, a refi? What does that look like? Are you, do investors have, you know, are, is the investors money being structured more as debt than equity? Right. Like, is there a point where basically investors get cashed out and now the syndicator owns a deal free and clear? And that's fine. Like some investors are happy with that. And syndicate, I mean, it's more power to the syndicator, right? There's nothing wrong with that structure. It's just different, right? Just know what you're getting into, you know, and then what are the rules around, you know, being able to, you know, vote, right? Can you get rid of a bad syndicator? Understanding those things. And, um, but really, I mean, learn the basics of underwriting the deal. Right, even a syndicator with a track record, go do some of the homework. I mean, you know, fifty thousand dollars is not a small chunk of change, right? Yeah. Go and you know, that's worth you spending the five hours to go just understand the basics. What does reversion cap mean? How do I calculate that? What does rent escalators mean? How do I calculate that? And then does it pass the gut check, man? Like I said earlier, it's not is it the deal that you're paying eighty and your cost base is hundred and ten and you need to sell for hundred and forty? I've literally had a broker come up to me and I'm not going to mention any names or markets, but you know, the broker literally said, well, at least this deal feels right. You guys are buying it for X, you're putting X into it and you're selling at X or Y things in this market sell at Y. Right. Yeah. Then he said, you know, other people will buy at a much higher price point, but, but then, you know, like nothing in this market sells at that price point. Yep. Right. So maybe in five years it might, but it's, you know, there's a different kind of deal. You know, and again, people are very successful doing that too, right? It's there, mm-hmm. you know, and I don't want to say that our strategy is the right way or the wrong way. It's there's different strategies that can get you success, right? It's about you as an investor. What are you comfortable with? Does that strategy align with what your strategies are, right? Because I mean, I have another friend who he has really patient equity. His equity is okay with getting the 5% return for five years yep. to buy the best property in the best intersection, yep. right? His strategy works well with his investor strategy my investors would kill me if we, if we got that kind of, you know what I mean? If I presented that to them. So, you know, it's about aligning interests. And so, yeah. And then, you know, I mean, and I tell people, if you're new, it's try to invest with different syndicators, right? Learn what you like and don't like, right? If you see this as a long-term investment career, 
try different people, right? How does that syndicator communicate? Do they yep. communicate the good and bad? How did the process look like? Did they have an online digital thing or was it like you have to mail it in the mail or fax it? You know, do they make themselves available? How do they do their distributions? Were you comfortable with the wiring process? There's a lot of things to kind of, you know, account for, right? Yeah, no, that's huge. And, you know, one of the things that I've looked for is how do they talk to me? How do they talk to my investor? Do they have a track record? You know, do they have a cap on the return that, that they can give me? What kind of fees do they have as well, though? You know, there's, you know, the really popular syndicators, you know, there's the Grant Cardones, there's Jed Milburn here, here in Salt Lake City, where, I mean, they do a fantastic job, but you definitely pay for it. You're going to get a 5% pref and they're going to get some massive fees and more power to them because they've built yeah. that track record. And, but you know, there's, there's also got, there has to be a really good reward and a mitigated amount of risk. I don't think that you need to take massive risks in this type, in a real estate market or any type of real estate investment to get good returns. You don't need to get a 5% return to be safe, but you also don't need a 20% return to get wealthy you can get your eight to 10% cash and cash returns. And that's really, really good. And, and so what I've told people, stop swinging for the fences. Maybe we'll find a unicorn, just like you said, but be okay with not getting a unicorn and get rich for sure, not fast, but get rich for sure, you know? And, and I think that's one of the things I like about you and Ben is you're very conservative. You work really hard to not overpromise but also not under, under delivery, you know, be right there in the middle, which I think is the perfect spot. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's what we try to do. And then, I mean, we, <laughs> we have to sometimes grab the bull by the horns and wrestle some of these deals, man. Like it's just, you know, and you have to be willing to do that. Right. I think that's where some syndicators kind of falter. I mean, it is yeah. a business that you just bought and you have to, yeah. you know, things are not roses. I mean, our investors don't see the, the sausage making. Right. But I mean, there's a lot of stuff that you have to kind of put up with and deal with and, you know, keep the things rolling forward. Right. But like I said, especially it's like I mentioned earlier, I mean, all these deals, once you're six months into the deal, just it's all a mess. Yep. There's construction going on everywhere. There's occupancy, there's cash flow problems, you know, and being willing to kind of go in and you have to work it. I mean, here's okay. Here's where we are. Here's what we're going to do for the next two weeks to help get this solved. Here's this. Okay. We're going to do this. We're going to go ask our lender to release more reserves if they could work with us to, you know, expedite, like, I mean, think like we have a deal right now, right? You know, we lose nothing for trying. And that's what I tell people. You lose nothing for trying. The most yeah. people can say is no. Literally went to our lender. I'm like, hey, we've done 50 of these rehabs. We've gotten $130 rent pops, right? But it just moves slow. We we have occupancy. We have, you know, we, have, we, have, we have vacancy, right? So we can go in and bang out a lot more. But right now it's a cash flow problem, right? Being because, you know, this our deals, you have to fund it. So you have to do the work submit the draw, then the, you know, the lender inspects it, then they fund it. But it's like a four-week process. And yeah. so a little, I went to the lender, and I'm like, well, hey, so we, we, should we show you that we've done this? What about if we did, you know, a collective, like, let's get a, you know, if I had a GC bang out 25 of these at one time, we can get better pricing, and the lender, you know, can you guys work with us to fund some of it as a deposit and expedite this? And they're going back to their committee, and they're going to go try to get that for us. So, and then the guy says, like, yeah, we should be able to do that. I mean, it's, you nice. know, being willing to kind of go and, figure out the problems and solve them and move forward. Yeah. And in what I've noticed for the good syndicators, the really good investors, they're problem solvers, you know, and, and that's what I like about you and Ben, uh, Maureen Miles, 
um, Jed, a couple other people that I really like is they kind of think outside the box. They're not afraid to get their hands dirty like you're talking about. They're not afraid to call a lender and hold them accountable. And they're just problem solvers. And that's the, the best skill I've had with my investments is just being a problem solver and, and figuring stuff out. Tell me a little bit, you know, we're kind of going over time, so I appreciate your time, but what can our listeners do to reach out to you? What do you have going on? Do you have deals that you're advertising? Um, are you going to have deals coming on later this year? I mean, how should we have them reach out to you? Yeah, I mean, feel free to, you know, check out the website, www.disruptequity.com or email me personally, Ferris, F-E-R-A-S at disruptequity.com. You know, I mean, we, we will, a good syndicator always has some sort of deal of flux, right? At least trying. I mean, you're always making yeah. offers, though. You know, I mean, we're hoping to do two more by the end of the year, but I mean, those are probably five or six B's, but, you know, we're happy to talk with people and learn and, you know, maybe at some point, you know, connect with people, right? And then on top of that, we, you know, we do host a conference. We try to do four a year. We ended up doing three this year, but, you know, our next one's in Boston, October 5th. So we'll be out there, you know, multifamily investor network, mfinvestornetwork.com. And then we'll be back here in Houston. So Sam, we got to get you down for that one. So you should pencil that in. I think yeah. the date is February 6th. That is it that whatever that Saturday is cool. It should definitely come out. We did our February 8th. We did the first one last, you know, first conference we ever did was last year. Turned out really well. I mean, 250 people were aiming for 300 for this time in Houston. And, um, you know, just want to kind of continue to build that out. And it's really meant to be a no sales pitch event. I mean, we lose money for these. Unfortunately, we're trying to just break even, <laughs> but you know, we're trying to foster a community environment where people can come out and learn and get exposure to. You know, what so your goal is to teach people at that event how to invest in multi Not even teach. You're not really trying to sell people like, anything, right? Yeah, so I say it is that people like me and you are willing to fly out across the country, spend three days and pay a couple hundred dollars a ticket for an event, right? Because we're, yeah. you know, we're serious in this space and we're committed to, we already know it, right? And, you know, we're kind of, you know, for lack of a better word, I mean, this is kind of like a, a job. Now, what we're really instead is how do I expose the the dentist, the doctor, the lawyer, the engineers, right, that are, have an interest in real estate and multifamily investing, but don't really know what it's about. And how do you at least give them, you know, one day crash course, right, into sure. getting exposure to the world of multifamily. And it's not to teach them everything, but it's to get to, to let them know what they need to go learn next, right? Yeah. And here's what I would say is I'd say go to go to this event. So it's mfinvestornetwork.com. Yeah. Go to the event and and the thing that I've really enjoyed is just meeting the actual syndicator, looking in their eyes and asking them the hard questions, you know, and, or, and just seeing how you interact with people. You know, there's one syndicator, I won't say his name. I would never work with him because he humiliated someone in our group in San Diego. And I don't know if you remember that, but I was appalled at how he treated people. He was arrogant and very smart individual. I'd never work with him, never send him a client. And, He's called me, said, hey, can, can you raise money for this project? And I just had to kindly say no. So that's one really valuable thing I think um, they can, people can do is come to your event, meet a couple different syndicators, meet you and Ben, and really understand that you're good down-to-earth people that are just yeah, kind of, we're trying to bring experts from the community, yeah. right? We're trying to have, you know, we're trying to have an expert about Opportunity Zone. Rod Khalif will be there. Neil Bowell will be there. Gene Trowbridge will be there. Really bringing, you know, it's just to get people kind of a taste of the world. That's, that's Absolutely. A, that's another way, you know, anyone in Boston will meet you or there or Houston as well, so. Hey, I'll, I'll come. Maybe we'll do one in Salt Lake City that. sometime here, actually. That's probably actually a good, 
we might do that. That's probably a good market for next year. We'll see. Well, maybe we'll tee it up and I can talk at your event about Salt Lake City and the uh, Silicon Slopes for five minutes. Let's make it happen. Sweet, dude.